Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Joyce can't make it this week, but we can't wait to have her back next week. In exciting news, we have a brand new pale blue women's tea in the Hashtag Sisters in Law merch store. Go to politicon.com merch and get yours now. They're going fast. Today, we'll be going over the latest January 6th developments, looking at the trial of the plotters to kidnap Governor Whitmer, and looking at the Supreme Court's decision and dissent over the SEAL's vaccine requirement. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to that, I want to talk about Kim's birthday and <laughs> birthday, the wisdom Kim. that she has gained Thank you. Thank you. I am 49 years old. I am saying that out 49? I said that for several years. So is this your first year? Is it 49? Because that lasts about five years. <laughs> like, honestly, you know how we lose all sense of time these days? I actually had been saying 49 for yeah. a while, and it <laughs> yeah. took me a minute. And I was just like, wait a minute. My birthday's here. I'm not turning 50 yet. I don't think this is... I ha- I, I didn't know how old I was for a minute. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's interesting. I used to be very cagey about my age, especially being someone um, in our industry where we spend some time on TV, you know, and I didn't know um, if that would hold me back in my career or if I would be judged harshly, punished, really, um, because so many women are in particular as we age. And then I thought to myself, you know what, if I'm doing that, if I'm playing that game, I'm a part of the problem. So I'm going to let people know this is what a 49-year-old woman looks like. 49-year-old women can be, you know, at their prime. I can, um, there's still a lot for me to do. uh, And we need to understand that, you know, middle age is not a dirty phrase. Um, And so I, you know, I I just, it's nice to have that because I feel like it's one of those pearls of wisdom that I've looked forward to gaining. Like I would always say to my mom um, when something was bothering her, I would say to her, I can't wait till I'm your age. Don't let this bother you because I can't wait till I'm your age when I don't give a bleep about anything. Like Mm -hmm. you earn that right Mm -hmm. and living this life and doing, learning all the things you want to and you don't have to care what anybody thinks about you or, or anything like that. And I'm slowly starting to get that. And this feels like one of those pearls of wisdom that can only come with age. And so, um, yes, thank you for the well wishes. I had a great birthday and I'm very happy to be 49 and for everyone to know it. Jill, I'd love to hear your thoughts on aging as well. But Kim, what you say really resonates with me as someone who's also um, middle-aged. And yes, I do intend to live to be 114 years old. Thank you very much. Um, uh, You know, I I, I sound like an old lady because I tell my students and my children this, that when I was a younger person, I looked at older people and and felt a little sorry for them. Like, oh, that must be so sad to be aging. And it's just the opposite. You gain so much wisdom. And I just think appreciation. Uh, you you really appreciate things. Like I appreciate a quiet night home because I've seen war-torn countries. You know, I've seen what's going on in Ukraine. And I appreciate sometimes when I, I'm just home and my family's together and we're healthy and we're alive. And so I think uh, the wisdom and the, the appreciation that you gain with each passing year is well worth uh, anything you lose in terms of... Uh, you know, uh, quickness of foot or miles an hour on your fastball. Jill, I know you've, you've shared some wisdom on this topic before. Well, first of all, I guess I have to say that I'll have to live to be 150 <laughs> if this is middle <laughs> age. happy return. You can but do it. I, I'll try and plan on that. Um, yeah, my birthday's coming up soon, and my best friends planned a big party thinking it was actually a 
big number. They were wrong, but we're still going to have the big party. And um, I do feel like I've gained a lot of appreciation. I think, Barb, you're exactly right that I'm happier now than I've ever been. And I feel like I'm still learning. It helps to start a new career when you're past 70. But, well, no, I guess I was only maybe, how old was I? Anyway, I, I was old. Um, and so it's nice to have a new career in your 70s. And I think that I have learned a lot from all of you. I think hanging out with younger people also keeps me young. It keeps me going. And um, so I'm, I'm excited. My best friends are all about 10 years younger than I am. And so I act like they do. I go hiking with them and I pretend like I'm just their age. And I think that's what everyone should do. Don't ever let your age stop you from doing something. Keep on, keep on it. That's all. Oh, I love hiking too. I can't wait till we do our uh, get together for a sisters-in-law joint hike. <laughs> Well, it's been a busy week with the January 6th committee and investigations and lots of developments. So let's jump right into them. First, Jill, I have to ask you, um, based on your experience investigating Watergate, about your take on these White House logs that came out. As everybody knows, Donald Trump had filed a legal challenge to prevent the National Archives from turning over to the January 6th committee some of these White House documents that he, he claimed were protected by executive privilege. The courts ruled against him. And now the committee actually has these documents. And we learned that on January 6th of 2021, there's a seven-hour gap on the phone logs between roughly 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., seven hours. Uh, shades of Watergate, the missing tapes. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, it's seven hours and 37 <laughs> minutes, which is quite incredible. And it is shades of Watergate. Watergate was only an 18 and a half minute gap. And I do have a piece coming out on MSNBC uh, about this, the comparison and contrast between these two different gaps. But for now, let's just say that a seven hour gap is incredible. It didn't happen. It can't be. The way the phone log is kept is mandatory and involves so many people that it's almost impossible to believe. We know that the president had lots of phone calls right before the gap and lots right after, and the gap coincides precisely with the most horrible events of the day, and it's not humanly possible to think that he did not have any incoming or outgoing calls at all. Maybe no outgoing because he deliberately avoided using the phone that's the White House that keeps the records. He might have used a burner phone. He might have used someone else's phone. He might have used his personal cell phone. Oh, the hypocrisy of that. But it's impossible for him to have stopped everyone from calling into the White House. So there's no way it's an accidental gap. It is either purged or it was deliberately created by not using it. But then again, it can't be that Incoming calls aren't recorded. So it, it's something that demands much more investigation. Yeah, you mentioned um, use of a burner phone, which, you know, for our listeners who are not drug dealers may not know what a burner <laughs> phone is. And if people use that in passing, like everybody knows what that is. Um, 
if if you are involved in prosecuting crimes, you do know that a burner phone, or and maybe other, you know, there are many reasons, legitimate pe- reasons people use these things. Um, if you don't have the income to pay for a subscription, you know, your f- phone service is incredibly expensive. You can go to a place like Best Buy. Or if Buy. you just don't want a contract. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You can go to Best Buy. You can buy, you know, sort of the, uh, it's like the, the equivalent of a disposable camera. It's a phone that's disposable. You prepay the minutes on it so you can use it but it isn't traced back to you the way your subscription is um, on your phone, on your cell phone, where that number comes back to you. So it's a way that sometimes um, people who are engaged in criminal or other wrongful activity will use it because it conceals that digital uh, paper trail. Kim, what were your thoughts about the the missing the missing phone calls? That's you know everything yeah, gets this, the name this... Gate. With, you know what is this phone gate? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it you know, a lot of things remind you of Watergate. The first thing I thought of was, you know, if it's if it's not the crime, it's the cover up, and this seems like a very, you know, as we said, this is a convenient period of time that's missing, right? <laughs> this feels very cover up ish to me. Mm. We do know that there were phone calls made, not just from a potential burner phone or other phones, but from the switchboard. We know that at least a couple members of Congress said that when they were in there, they got calls from the White House switchboard. And they were um, indicated that it was the president still trying to push Mike Pence to stop certification of the election, even as the siege was underway. That has been reported. Um, So we do know that there are calls. We also know that this is a president who believes in a cover up. Remember the ripping up of his notes that was also illegal. Remember the the wads of ripped up paper being retrieved from toilets. Um, One report that he actually swallowed some. I mean. Come on, this this president has a record of trying to cover things up, and so this seemed in line with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really interesting thing, you know. In in the um, prosecution, there's this phrase that we would often refer to as consciousness of guilt, and that is you don't lie and cover things up if you're not doing anything wrong. Now, of course, that's not the only explanation, but it is one possible explanation that, you know, you're trying to cover your tracks because you know what you're doing is wrong. Um, What about news, Kim, this week that DOJ is expanding its investigation to include planning and funding for the rally on January 6th? Yeah, you know, that was good to see. What I'm hoping, and again, it's hard to tell because the DOJ doesn't tell us everything, but that this isn't, I know a lot of times we say, oh, the DOJ seems to be ramping up in this area. I hope it's not a ramp up. I hope they've been doing this. And that they're just explaining why a a couple days before this news drop, we learned that they had hired, I think it was 131 more lawyers. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like maybe they're doing uh, hiring lawyers who have a special special experience in looking into this kind of thing, because we all know you follow the money. And so I would hope that from the beginning, the DOJ was paying very close attention to funding, where money was flowing, because that will show you where the planning was in place. And so I'm hoping that this is just maybe it's the DOJ revealing this information Mm -hmm. in response to people, um, I don't know, like me, who have been publicly questioning (laughs) what they've been doing and why it's taking so long to explain what this process is like. I appreciate that, um, A.G. Garland. Thank you for that. Um, But I'm hoping that this is a part of the continuation of the DOJ probe that has been ongoing for more than a year now. Yeah, and I think that's right. you know, when DOJ opens a case, um, they open one investigation, and then if if other uh, defendants become targets or subjects, the case just grows. And so it isn't like there was one case for the people who stormed the Capitol, and there will be another case against 
people who planned the rally, and then another case for Trump and his cronies. Um, they may be different indictments that get filed, but in terms of the investigation, it's all open as one umbrella. And so I see this as validation for my view that they have been investigating all of this all along. Though I am curious how this became public, because I think the Washington Post and the New York Times had the same story on the same day, which does suggest a leak. But I just think the DOJ, this particular leadership, is so um, committed to doing things by the book that um, I'd like to think it wasn't they who leaked it. I found when I was practicing, most often when there was uh, press about a, a grand jury subpoena that should be secret, it was most often the witness who was disclosing it for some self-serving reason that they shared it with the That's press. So I don't know who, who it is. Jill, you have any thoughts on that and how this became public? So I have um, some optimism as a result of the news about the expansion to cover planners and funders. But I remain still disturbed about the fact that it's taking so long. I do believe that justice delayed can be justice denied and that there's a lot you know, obviously they're handling a lot. It's the biggest case that the Department of Justice has ever had with over 770 people already indicted for January 6th. But I think that it's time for them to get really busy. And I am encouraged by the fact of the, the news of the additional hiring and the expansion of the scope. So I'll just say I'm, I'm happy with that expansion and hoping that they'll move faster yeah, I, I understand the urgency, and I know many people have pointed to the midterm elections as a deadline, but I just don't think the Justice Department is able to bring indictments in a case of this complexity that quickly. And I don't think they're operating under uh, that that same uh, kind of deadline. But I think the January 6th committee is the congressional committee, because if Republicans take the House, I think it's quite possible, quite likely that they'll shut down that investigation. Um, and, yeah. and I saw that Jared Kushner met with the committee on Thursday for six hours and was described as cooperative. Now, he was in Saudi Arabia on January 6th of 2021. Do you think that there's anything that he could tell the committee that might be useful, Jill? I definitely think so. He, of course, is intimately familiar with um, the president's mood and actions before January 6th. He also knows what his wife's involvement on January 6th was. And he also has knowledge about the president's knowledge of his loss of the election. And he was part of discussions, according to Jonathan Carroll's book, uh, about how to inform President Trump that he had actually lost. And the other thing is, he's mentioned in um, a text message to Mark Meadows from Ginny Thomas saying that she had emailed Jared. Now, it didn't say Jared Kushner, but I think the assumption is probably pretty safe that it was Jared Kushner that she was referring to. So there seems to be a lot, and that's confirmed by the fact that he was with them testifying virtually for over six hours. You don't have someone for six hours, and he did not claim any privilege, mm -hmm. apparently, according to the reports. So if he was testifying for six hours, he had a lot of information to share, and the committee seems to be very happy with his cooperation and is hoping that— Is he the John Dean of, uh, of this scandal? No. Uh, that's I don't a good think question. So. I, don't, I don't know that he knows enough or was active enough. He's, he seems to have stayed pretty far away, don't you think? Yeah, I don't know. Kim, I'm interested in your thoughts about Jared and also about the Ginny Thomas texts. 
Yeah, you know, I, with Jarrett, I think, yes, it's, of course, they asked him to come in because he was a high-ranking White House official. I mean, I think anybody who's a high-ranking White House official during that time needs to testify, needs to be called in. If they do it voluntarily, great. If not, then they should be subpoenaed. Um, he wasn't there physically that day. Um, he can, I agree with everything that Jill says about very useful information they can give, but that was really expected. I'm not sure he was in the mix <laughs> enough to be John Dean, but I don't, that's just my own opinion. Um, I'm not attributing that to anybody else. But yeah, the fact that among other things, Ginny Thomas in her just absolute um, bonkers text messages that were revealed um, in the last week. The fact that she referred to Jared, I don't think she was talking about a jewelry store. I think she was talking about Jared Kushner. Um, <laughs> I think that alone um, is reason to bring him in to talk to him and certainly reason to talk to her. Um, I know there are reports that members of the January 6th committee want to talk to her, but some are concerned about subpoenaing her. Some not named Liz Cheney are concerned about subpoenaing her because of the political blowback because her husband is such a beloved uh, GOP conservative uh, figure. I don't think that matters. Democracy is more important. Um, the Boston Globe's editorial board uh, wrote an editorial this week saying that she needs to be subpoenaed now. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, it just yeah, I think some Republicans are downplaying her involvement, saying, you know what, she's bonkers. Like, she's been bonkers for years, it's, you know, trying to say that she wasn't as important as she was. She had a direct line with the chief of staff of the president of the United States and a Supreme Court justice that was hearing cases that Trump was bringing in connection to the election. I can't see anybody more central to that, regardless of what you think about them. Um, she really needs to tell folks what she knew. Um, and I, I hope that subpoena comes very quickly. Yeah. She even refers in those text messages to talking about it with her best friend. And, and people have said that, Who is is her, that that's her euphemism for her husband. That that's, yes. what, that's what she, that's how she refers to him. So I, I agree with you, Kim. And there is that comment about She's talking to Jared. So as, as Jill said, I'd want to hear from Jared. W you know, did, did, were you in conversation with Jenny Thomas? And what were you? What were the two of you talking about? I also just, the only thing I want to say about the Jared interview is people are going gaga over the fact that Jared Kushner actually showed up. You know, he was asked to come testify before Congress. He showed up and he answered the questions. He didn't, you know, uh, assert a privilege. He didn't refuse to come as if that's so remarkable or he should get special points for that. It reminds me of a time when, um, Arnold Palmer was about to win some golf tournament and he, um, he, he, he touched the ball, even though it didn't advance the ball. And, and you have to count that as a stroke. And as a result, he lost some big golf tournament and everybody praised him. What a hero. He's so honorable. And he said, you know, you shouldn't get extra credit just for doing the right thing. And I think that's so appropriate here. Like that, that's what you're just supposed to do, right? So you don't get any credit for not cheating and not stalling and not dragging your feet. So he did what he's supposed to do. And, uh, uh, we go, on we go. Um, speaking of people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, uh, the committee has now voted to recommend to the full Congress that they refer two more witnesses to DOJ for criminal prosecution for contempt for refusing to comply with subpoenas. That's Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino. Um, Kim, do you think, um, first, let, let's tell uh, our listeners who these guys are, but why do you think the committee yeah. might want to talk to them? Well, uh, Dan Scavino is a caddy turned general manager of a Trump golf course turned uh, deputy chief of staff, 
while Trump was in office. Peter Navarro, of course, is a former trade advisor uh, who I believe, don't hold me to this, but I think Trump uh, found him on television uh, when he was speaking on Fox News. Um, But they were within Trump's circle. And it makes sense that the committee would want to talk to them. Obviously, Scavino uh, was in very close proximity to Trump in general, and certainly on the day of the riot. And Navarro uh, has been pushing these baseless uh, election claims for a long time. So they are central characters. And the fact that they have refused cooperation so far is right in line to how other people um, have reacted, those closest to Donald Trump, most supportive of Donald Trump. I really do hope that the DOJ continues to hold these people accountable and bring criminal charges and make clear you cannot flout this. This is not um, this is not voluntary when you are uh, subpoenaed in order to come in. And, you know, DOJ did file criminal charges against Steve Bannon, has not yet done so for Mark Meadows. And it's been some time. Jill, any any quick final thoughts as to why DOJ has not filed criminal charges against Mark Meadows for contempt? There seems to be no good reason, in my opinion. And it is one of those things that concerns me about their lack of action. It is a clear-cut case because there's a difference between not cooperating, i.e. you show up and you don't answer any questions, you claim privilege. Very different than refusing to show up at all. And certainly Scavino and Navarro both have just totally blown it off. That's a clear-cut case. And when referred by a full vote, should be an easy indictment. And Meadows cooperated a little bit, but then he just refused and stopped. And he doesn't get any special treatment because he was the chief of staff. He's now an American citizen, and any citizen has to come in and at least say, I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me or some other legitimate reason. So there's no reason. They must act, and they should do it soon, because otherwise it will continue the pileup of non-cooperating witnesses. They need to see that there are consequences for blowing off the January 6th committee. And without cooperation, without the Department of Justice doing this, I think you're going to have no more oversight. And our government depends on a system of checks and balances and oversight by Congress. So I hope they act fast. I agree with you that there's such an important um, deterrent uh, purpose of a criminal prosecution so that people realize if you get served with a subpoena, they mean it and you have to go and you have to testify. And if you don't, there are serious consequences. My only hope is that the reason DOJ has not filed charges yet is because they see Mark Meadows not so much as a witness, but as a potential defendant. The defense rested on Thursday, and yesterday the jury heard closing arguments in the trial of six men accused of plotting to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Barb, it's your governor, and I know you've been following the trial closely, so can you tell us what the crimes charged are and outline the basic evidence supporting those charges? Yeah, um, the uh, closing arguments have concluded. The jury will start deliberating on Monday, and the charges in the indictment are a conspiracy to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, a conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, as well as some weapons charges, possession of some illegal weapons. And the alleged plot was that a group of militia members from Michigan, who called themselves the Wolverine Watchmen, uh, plotted to 
go to the governor's vacation home in northern Michigan, kidnap her, take her out in the middle of a, of a boat, in the middle of a lake, and leave her there. Um, there is some uncertainty as to whether they also plan to kill her, but the indictment alleges conspiracy to kidnap. And some of the, there's also a few people who've been charged with state charges for providing material support to domestic terrorism, the people who provided weapons to them. That's in state court. So the federal trial that has been occurring for the last 14 days is related to this kidnap plot. And some of the testimony has been that these four men, uh, along with these others, agreed, which is the gist of a conspiracy charge. They agreed that they would go to her home. They conducted uh, surveillance of her home. They actually went there and drove past it on a couple of occasions. They inspected a bridge that they would have to cross to get to her home and wanted to plant explosives in the bridge to blow it up, to delay the police in being able to respond to an attack. And they um, accumulated some weapons. They did some training. They even built a model, what they called shoot house with human silhouettes that they used for training because they would have to extract her from her security detail. And so they practiced uh, on those things and they were caught. Um, there were informants in the case. You know, There was an informant who was part of this group who heard what he was saying. He was um, horrified by what he heard. So he called law enforcement uh, and then they got informants involved and undercovers involved. And so the day they were arrested, they thought they were going to buy explosives that they could use to blow up this bridge as part of this plot. And instead, when they got to the warehouse, they were arrested. Those are the allegations, and, and those are the facts that have been coming out during the trial. And, and they've introduced some violent videos of the training sessions that must have, I think, been pretty compelling to the jury. But so, Kim, talk about what the defense has to say. <laughs> so uh, it's really interesting. I haven't been following it quite as closely as Barb, but I've been following it. And I was sort of waiting to see what the defense was. And it didn't actually seem to materialize. Um, at some point, entrapment was mentioned, uh, but no witnesses, for example, um, supporting an entrapment defense were ever offered by the defense. By the way, entrapment basically means um, in arguments uh, that a defendant is saying, well, yes, I may have taken these actions, but I was encouraged and, and really prodded to do them by someone like an FBI informant that you were talking about. Um, and I wouldn't have done it but for that. Um, and so I was sort of entrapped into this. Um, I didn't commit this of my own volition. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that despite the fact that there was no real evidence of this and no real clear argument made, um, that the judge still gave an entrapment jury instruction. I think that was a gift to the defense, honestly, because, I mean, there was more said during this trial uh, in defense of one um, defendant, for example, basically claiming he was such a pothead, he didn't have the capacity to plan a plot like this. Yeah, too, too stupid uh, to hurt anybody, right? I've heard exactly. that before. I mean, this is the, the, these are the defenses they're putting up. So... Um, the judge on Friday gave an entrapment instruction, and he explained to the jury um, that they could consider whether uh, the government tried to persuade the defendant to commit the defendants to commit the crime. He also noted um, what in that such inducement means, like just approaching a person or having or being present. Where he said that there was an FBI informant that was a part of this group, just their presence alone does not uh, equal entrapment. That they actually have to do something to um, 
uh, coerce these defendants to doing it, even just suggesting something might happen, is not entrapment. So it seems that these uh, instructions were trying to be clear about what entrapment is and is it not? And is not. The judge also noted that if the defendant was already uh, ready and willing to commit the crime, that's not entrapment. So um, again, I think it was a gift to defense to the defense that this is even on the table for the jury to consider. But considering there were no, there's no evidence really, no witnesses, no nothing to support it. I think that's a long shot. And so, what do both of you think in terms of the overall? trial of this and whether the crime itself is a crime of domestic terrorism or is it based on misogyny because she is a woman? What what do you think is motivating these people to have plotted to kidnap and possibly try and possibly kill Governor Whitmer? Can I start with that? I mean, I think yeah. the precursor to the insurrection that we saw at the Michigan State capital gives you a good idea about this. That is of the same vein of what these allegations are. These are people who stormed that state house, thought they had a right to, were threatening her, carrying nooses and such. Um, I do believe that that is terrorism. I do believe that it is of the same vein as what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Um, is there some sexism involved? Maybe. There used, you know, sex, where sexism can exist, it usually does. But I'm not sure that that is the driver. I think they were angry at these are anti-government militias. Look, I grew up, as I've mentioned, in Michigan. These militia groups are not new. They have been around. These anti-government, very scary militia groups have been a part of that state's culture, unfortunately, for a really long time. And I think they were empowered and activated uh, in this political climate, and that presented a very real threat to her life. I agree that this is absolutely domestic terrorism. And I think um, one of the reasons they were able to bring this as a federal case is because they happened to plan a kidnapping, which has its own special statute. Um, there are certain kinds of crimes that cannot be brought as domestic terrorism. If it's simply a shooting or the use of a vehicle as a weapon, there is not a, a federal charge for that, which I think is a flaw in the law. And I think we need to equate domestic terrorism with international terrorism. But so many ties um, and parallels in this case to things I saw as a national security prosecutor to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, which is a grievance and people recruiting and spinning each other up and people who are um, otherwise unaccomplished in life finding a way to, you know, with delusions of grandeur, how they're going to become famous and be the ones who you know do something important. And they were very angry about her COVID shutdown orders. Certainly reasonable minds can disagree as to what was the appropriate response to COVID. Michigan was among the most aggressive early on in the pandemic of shutting things down. I, I, I think she did what she thought was appropriate under the circumstances based on medical and health data. Uh, but they were very angry about it. And so this is how they were going to, you know, they referred to as a tyrant uh, and preserve their liberty and their freedom and really exploiting uh, the freedoms we enjoy as Americans, uh, suggesting that be because of that, they had the ability to go you know, take out the government because they, they disagreed. So I think when you think about the, the key hallmarks of terrorism, it is violence uh, that is dangerous to human life for the purpose of coercing uh, government action or intimidating a civilian population. I think it has all of that. And so, well, yes, Jill, I am disturbed that we see so many women at the focus of all this, because I do think there's a bit of that tied up in it. I think this was 
absolutely domestic terrorism. I'm just grateful that they chose to commit the crime of kidnapping so that there was a really strong, clean federal offense there that they could be charged with. So one last question. Anybody want to predict the outcome of this case and how quick the verdict will be? Well, considering there was no defense, (laughs) I'm not thinking (laughs) it's going to take very long. I mean, I don't know if it's a prediction. I hope that people who plot to kidnap a governor for political reasons get very strong penalties for that. I think that that is important for democracy. That is important for the rule of law. um, That is important for our country. So I will hope that there is accountability for this plot. Yeah, I've been following the case pretty closely. The evidence from the government is very strong. As Kim said, the defense was very weak. Um, And so I I would expect a quick verdict to convict. However, uh, this case is being heard in the western part of the state of Michigan, where, as Kim said, there is a long tradition of some of these private paramilitary groups that call themselves militias. If you had even one person on the jury who is sympathetic to that cause, I suppose you could end up with a hung jury. But um, aside from that, I see it as being a very strong case, and I'd be surprised with anything other than a quick uh, verdict of conviction on all counts. So just as we wrapped taping last week's episode, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an emergency ruling denying a challenge by 35 special operations service members, including Navy SEALs, who wanted to lodge a religious objection to the Pentagon's vaccine requirement. Jill, tell us about that order and why it matters. It's a a great and interesting case where the lower court agreed with their complaint and barred the Navy from considering their vaccination status in making any assignments. Now, the Navy, of course, was very concerned about the close quarters that SEALs um, are in and the risk to SEALs who are vaccinated or unvaccinated in not in, in being together, and also because they have to have a readiness factor. They have to be ready to go. They can't afford to have any of their SEALs be ill with COVID. And so they basically said, everybody has to be vaccinated. And these particular SEALs refused and made a religious objection. Um, At the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit have ruled on it. It went to the Supreme Court for a stay of the injunction. And the stay was lifted. In a very interesting vote, Um, Justice Thomas, who we've been talking about today again, uh, wrote a a dissent, and Kavanaugh, on behalf of um, himself, wrote a very long concurrence. And the but the basic premise was a one-paragraph order from the Supreme Court saying that the Army, I'm sorry, the Navy can use vaccination status for now as one of the conditions of assignment. It did say that it can't, it upheld the lower court order, so they can't use it to punish someone, but they don't have to give them the assignment that they want in order to protect other SEALs. And you want me to talk about the Kavanaugh concurrence? Because that's a very interesting case where he basically said, 
The judge cannot make such a ruling. He agreed with the decision because the president has the sole authority as commander-in-chief, and no judge can second-guess him on that, and that it's better to leave this to professional military judgment on what is necessary. So that was the basis of that. Yeah, it's interesting because that case did split the conservatives. Um, We don't know exactly what the main rationale for this ruling is because it was an emergency order um, and there was no main opinion. That is, if you recall, we've talked a lot about the shadow docket, and this is an example of that. But some people uh, issued their own opinions, and so that gave us some light in that. And speaking of, Barb, uh, there were some conservatives on the court that disagreed with Kavanaugh and the other people in the majority. What did they say? Yes. So Justice Thomas just dissented without opinion because he was still in the hospital. Remember, he was in the hospital for some infection that conveniently coincided with the Ginny Thomas bad press. <laughs> but um, but we, we wish him well. Bless his heart. We're glad he's back. Um, but there were two justices who did write an opinion, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch signed on. And, you know, I think they were um, they had to choose between religion and the military for a conservative this is like sophie's choice oh god what do i choose religion or the military (laughs) exactly and you know when it's a um it when it's a republican president there is this whole unitary executive theory that the you know if the executive branch wants to do something they get to do it but who's in office oh yeah so it's um it's it's a biden administration so unitary executive yeah kind of important but uh, religion and military are facing off. I'm going to go with religion for $1,000. Um, religion is is the winner here. And so what they say is that um, uh, the challengers in this case, quote, appear to have been treated shabbily by the Navy. It was a very complicated exemption procedure, and there's not yet been a religious exemption. And so um, they would have said that uh, they the Navy does not get carte blanche to be able to make these decisions. You know, as Jill pointed out, I don't see how you possibly operate a Navy in today's world without being able to require that your Navy SEALs, the people who go on the most sensitive missions in the world, uh, don't have to be um, vaccinated. And it isn't even a mandatory vaccination requirement. It is just they get to make personnel decisions on the basis of whether someone has been vaccinated. So they don't have to put somebody on the submarine or, you know, do the, the special ops plan if they haven't been vaccinated. But uh, Justices Alito and Gorsuch would would, would have dis- dissented and said that they come out in favor of the religious right of the seal to choose not to be vaccinated and not to have it held against him. You know, they also said that they, they that the seals had been treated shabbily in how the religious objection was processed by the Navy. And that was part of why they made the decision. But I I think the main focus really is and should be on the military readiness. And when I was general counsel of the Army, we actually had something like this, which was there was an effort to unionize the Army. And it's one of those things that you hear and you go like, well, I believe in unions, but I can't exactly see a union steward being involved in the commander said, take that hill. And a soldier goes, I don't think so. I don't want to do it because I'm on my break. I'm going to talk to my union steward. You cannot run a military without a clear chain of command, and there can't be any intervention by the court or by a union. So I think it's it was an important decision in that regard. 
Yeah, and I uh, appreciate your point, Barb. I thought the same thing. It's like, okay, you take the conservatives of the Supreme Court. What would it take to fracture them uh, putting military against religious freedom? It was sort of like the um, the case involving the 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 uh, pastor in the death chamber. It's like, okay, we're really tough on uh, you know law and order. Oh, but religious freedom. So, but that only broke off Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas went the law and order way, and all the other conservatives went the religious freedom way. I think maybe. That might be, um, this is a very specific case involving a very small number of people who it impacts, right? Um, but if you're trying to think of tea leaves that this gives us about how the court might rule in the future on religious um, rights claims, I guess that's one tea leaf that I took away was that I guess it depends on what the claim is up against. If it's up against something else that the conservatives really value, then you may get that fracture and you may get an unexpected result. What do you guys think? What do you guys take away from this? Jill, I start with you. I think you're absolutely right that it was a Hobson's choice or a Sophie's choice for the conservatives. Uh, and that the fact that any of them thought that the religious grounds could defeat the military necessity grounds is surprising. And, and you're right about the death chamber pastor case. These are issues where there's been an expansion of religious rights that could be troublesome from my perspective. Yeah, I, I think there's a case coming up next term, Kim, that pits religious rights against uh, anti-discrimination laws to protect the LGBTQ community. And yeah. uh, I think it does not bode well for those anti-discrimination laws uh, to see how, um, how much they dig in their heels here for um, religious liberty. So I, I, I think that that's, uh, that's something I'll be looking for next term. Yeah, I think you're right. We all love getting listener questions, and we hope that you will keep them coming to us so that we can answer the things that are of real concern to you. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. So now let's get to the first question. And that comes from Jeff. And Barb, maybe you can answer this. Jeff asks, if Mark Pomerantz claims that Trump committed numerous felonies, can Merrick Garland take up the case should the Manhattan District Attorney in New York decline to indict? The answer is yes, they can. Now, there would have to be federal charges uh, because the Manhattan District Attorney has authority over state charges and the federal prosecutors can only look at federal charges, of course. But it seems like the kinds of things that we know they were looking at, this overvaluing of assets for purposes of obtaining loans and this undervaluing of assets for the purpose of, of taxes, those are also federal offenses. You know, the bread and butter of a fraud prosecution in the federal system is 
wire fraud or mail fraud. So as long as you have a scheme to defraud and there is any kind of wire transaction, it could be an email, it could be you know uploading a document, electronic filing, you've got a wire fraud claim. Uh, same with regard to mail fraud. If you know the, the, the older fashioned version of wire fraud was mail fraud, where you put something in the mail in furtherance of the scheme to defraud. So you can almost always convert a state fraud scheme into a federal fraud scheme um, through that method. So I think what the, the answer would be yes. Now, of course, then it comes down to the facts. Um, is, is the case any more attractive to federal prosecutors than it is to state prosecutors? And you know, if there is something of substance there, that they can look at it. So I hope those conversations are occurring. When I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, we frequently talked with our state court counterparts. We all had good relationships, and we would talk about cases and say, you know, hey, I know you have that statute. Do you, would you take a look at this case? Does it seem like it would be better served there? Sometimes we even fought over cases. We wanted it to go federal, and a state court prosecutor wanted it to go state. But we usually were able to work out what we thought was the best resolution of the case, so it was in the best forum. So I, I would expect that those conversations are either occurring or have occurred. Great answer. And here's a question from your town. It's from Jane in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and another listener named, and I'm going to spell this out because there's so many different ways you could divide the syllables here. It's at M-A-R-I-E-L-A-M-E-N-S-C-H-84. Um, but the question from Jane is, should Senate hearings continue in the future since they are so clearly broken right now? You, meaning the sisters-in-law, discussed the idea of potentially getting rid of the hearings. But if we didn't have these hearings, would we have learned about the credible accusations against Kavanaugh? And that's a great question, Jane. And the answer is, I don't think we're going to get rid of the hearings. And I don't think we really should get rid of the hearings, even though we see the political nature right in front of us and the ridiculous questions Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has been asked about her faith, about things that just are so inappropriate, about her decisions on sentencing, about a book that was taught in a school that, where she's on the board that had nothing to do with her qualifications to be on the Supreme Court. I still think that there is a benefit in letting Americans get to know the candidate uh, and see why they are qualified and to make their own evaluations. And sometimes there may be grounds that should be fleshed out. None of those happened here, but it could in future. So I don't think that we should get rid of them. And I don't think we, and, and I think you're right, we wouldn't have learned about the credible accusations against Kavanaugh if there hadn't been a hearing. Our last question today is from Katie. And Katie asks, about Trump raking in massive amounts of campaign cash. And her question is, is he allowed to mix it with his enterprises? What can he legally spend it on? And if he veers off the tracks, will the Department of Justice do anything? Kim, can you answer Katie's question? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, Katie is correct that Donald Trump has raised a, an enormous amount of money. His first campaign for president was sort of marked by the fact that he really wasn't doing traditional fundraising and he managed to use social media and other lever levers um, to win anyway. This time it's the exact opposite. It's well over $100 million. Um, last time I checked, it probably will make it difficult for other people to get in to challenge him. But um, where that money can be spent, that money is mostly in his 
it's called a leadership pack, which people who do not have an active campaign at the moment can still uh, open them. And they cannot be used. This money cannot be used directly to fund his presidential campaign, but it can be used for so many things. It can be used for just about anything that has a political purpose. He can give some of it to congressional or Senate uh, campaigns to help them. He can buy ads on TV or radio. He can actually, here's a funny thing, he's banned from Facebook that pack can still buy ads on Facebook. It, it's, it's a different rule, and he can get around that. Certainly, there are people on that PAC's payroll that you may know from Trump land, uh, people like Brad Parscale and others who are paid for consultancies. I'm doing air quotes if you can't see them, uh, and things like that. He can also hold rallies. He can host events at Trump properties, which it's something he loves to do. And so can it uh, mix with his enterprises? Yeah, they can directly pay his enterprises. He can certainly line, um, indirectly line his own pockets to that. Now, there are rules governing this. And you're asking, if he veers off the track, what will the DOJ do? Well, I, it, it's uncertain. First of all, uh, campaign finance is covered uh, governed by the Federal Election Commission. They set the rules and they enforce them. Um, they usually enforce, enforce them civilly. So you can get penalties and fines and stuff if you run uh, afoul of them. And if for the most really egregious cases, such as fraud, then they can be referred to the DOJ for criminal prosecution. The DOJ does have an elections crimes division. That doesn't happen a lot for a lot of reasons. Uh, including the fact that the FEC for a long time has been pretty feckless um, because of political divisions within it. So I'm not holding my breath that we're going to see a big DOJ case um, or even b massive FEC action. But honestly, the rules are lax enough that you really don't have to run afoul from the rules to really have people in Trump land benefit from this massive quantity of cash. Great answer, Kim, and a great Thing for Congress to start looking at whether there needs to be Absolutely. new FEC laws. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Meanwhile, go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our brand new women's t-shirt and please support this week's sponsors. HelloFresh, Headspace, Shopify, Apostrophe, and Blueland. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps us and it helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sisters in law. What the hell was that sound? No, I won't use that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start over. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, no, we probably shouldn't use that. We probably shouldn't use that. I love it. And then, Jill, you can just say that's the sound of a Shopify. I sale. will. I will. Oh my God. That it's was it's great. a good, it's fine. It's just I wasn't expecting I wasn't it. Either. Do you really want to use it? Okay.